Section 48 of Jean-Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean-Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Rolland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 4. French or not, she filled his thoughts, for he woke in the middle of the night with a pang. He had just remembered the valise on the seat by the girl's side, and suddenly the idea that she had gone forever crossed his mind. The idea must have come to him at the time, but he had not thought of it. It filled him with a strange sadness. He shrugged his shoulders. "'What does it matter to me?' he said. "'It is not my affair.' He went to sleep. But next day the first person he met when he went out was Mannheim, who called him Blucher and asked him if he had made up his mind to conquer all France. From the garrulous newsmonger he learned that the story of the box had had a success exceeding all Mannheim's expectations. "'Thanks to you! Thanks to you!' cried Mannheim. "'You are a great man! I am nothing compared with you!' "'What have I done?' said Christophe. "'You are wonderful!' Mannheim replied. "'I am jealous of you!' to shut the box in the Grunebaum's faces, and then to ask the French governess instead of them. No, that takes the cake. I should never have thought of that. She was the Grunebaum's governess? said Christophe, in amazement. Yes, pretend you don't know. Pretend to be innocent. You'd better. My father is beside himself. The Grunebaum's are in a rage. It was not for long. They have sacked the girl. What? cried Christophe. They have dismissed her? Dismissed her because of me? Didn't you know? said Mannheim. Didn't she tell you? Christophe was in despair. You mustn't be angry, old man, said Mannheim. It does not matter. Besides, one had only to expect that the Grunebaums would find out. What? cried Christophe. Find out what? That she was your mistress, of course. But I do not even know her. I don't know who she is. Mannheim smiled, as if to say, "'You take me for a fool.' Christophe lost his temper and bade Mannheim do him the honor of believing what he said. Mannheim said, "'Then it is even more humorous.' Christophe worried about it, and talked of going to the Grunebaums, and telling them the facts, and justifying the girl. Mannheim dissuaded him. "'My dear fellow,' he said, "'anything you may say will only convince them of the contrary.' Besides, it is too late. The girl has gone away. Christophe was utterly sick at heart and tried to trace the young Frenchwoman. He wanted to write to her to beg her pardon, but nothing was known of her. He applied to the Grunebaums, but they snubbed him. They did not know themselves where she had gone, and they did not care. The idea of the harm he had done in trying to do good tortured Christophe. He was remorseful but added to his remorse was a mysterious attraction which shone upon him from the eyes of the woman who was gone. Attraction and remorse both seemed to be blotted out, engulfed in the flood of the day's new thoughts, but they endured in the depths of his heart. Christophe did not forget the woman whom he called his victim. He had sworn to meet her again. He knew how small were the chances of his ever seeing her again, and he was sure that he would see her again. As for Corinne, she never answered his letters. But three months later, when he had given up expecting to hear from her, 
he received a telegram of forty words of utter nonsense in which she addressed him in little familiar terms and asked if they were still fond of each other then after nearly a year's silence there came a scrappy letter scrawled in her enormous childish zigzag writing in which she tried to play the lady a few affectionate droll words and there she left it she did not forget him but she had no time to think of him still under the spell of corinne and full of the ideas they had exchanged about art christophe dreamed of writing the music for a play in which corinne should act and sing a few airs a sort of poetic melodrama that form of art once so much in favor in germany passionately admired by mozart and practiced by beethoven weber mendelssohn and schumann and all the great classics had fallen into discredit since the triumph of wagnerism which claimed to have realized the definite formula of the theatre and music the wagnerian pedants not content with proscribing every new melodrama busied themselves with dressing up the old melodramas and operas they carefully effaced every trace of spoken dialogue and wrote for mozart beethoven or weber recitations in their own manner they were convinced that they were doing a service to the fame of the masters and filling out their thoughts by the pious deposit of their dung upon masterpieces christophe who had been made more sensible of the heaviness and often the ugliness of wagnerian declamation by corinne had for some time been debating whether it was not nonsense and an offence against nature to harness and yoke together the spoken word and the word sung in the theatre it was like harnessing a horse and a bird to a cart speech and singing each had its rhythm it was comprehensible that an artist should sacrifice one of the two arts to the triumph of that which he preferred but to try to find a compromise between them was to sacrifice both it was to want speech no longer to be speech and singing no longer to be singing to want singing to let its vast flood be confined between the banks of monotonous canals to want speech to cloak its lovely naked limbs with rich heavy stuffs which must paralyze its gestures and movements why not leave both with their spontaneity and freedom of movement like a beautiful girl walking tranquilly lithely along a stream dreaming as she goes the gay murmur of the water lulls her dreams and unconsciously she brings her steps and her thoughts in tune with the song of the stream so being both free music and poesy would go side by side dreaming their dreams mingling assuredly all music was not good for such a union nor all poetry the opponents of melodrama had good ground for attack in the coarseness of the attempts which had been made in that form and of the interpreters christophe had for long shared their dislike the stupidity of the actors who delivered these recitations spoken to an instrumental accompaniment without bothering about the accompaniment without trying to merge their voices in it rather on the contrary trying to prevent anything being heard but themselves was calculated to revolt any musical ear but since he had tasted the beauty of corinne's harmonious voice that liquid and pure voice which played upon music like a ray of light on water which wetted every turn of a melody which was like the most fluid and most free singing he had caught a glimpse of the beauty of a new art 
Perhaps he was right, but he was still too inexperienced to venture without peril upon a form which, if it is meant to be beautiful and really artistic, is the most difficult of all. That art especially demands one essential condition, the perfect harmony of the combined efforts of the poet, the musicians, and the actors. Christophe had no tremors about it. He hurled himself blindly at an unknown art of which the laws were only known to himself. His first idea had been to clothe in music a fairy fantasy of Shakespeare, or an act of the second part of Faust. But the theatres showed little disposition to make the experiment. It would be too costly and appeared absurd. They were quite willing to admit Christophe's efficiency in music, but that he should take upon himself to have ideas about poetry and the theatre made them smile. They did not take him seriously. The world of music and the world of poesy were like two foreign and secretly hostile states. Christophe had to accept the collaboration of a poet to be able to set foot upon poetic territory, and he was not allowed to choose his own poet. He would not have dared to choose himself. He did not trust his taste in poetry. He had been told that he knew nothing about it, and, indeed, he could not understand the poetry which was admired by those about him. With his usual honesty and stubbornness, he had tried hard sometimes to feel the beauty of some of these works, but he had always been bewildered and a little ashamed of himself. No, decidedly, he was not a poet. In truth, he loved passionately certain old poets, and that consoled him a little, but no doubt he did not love them as they should be loved. Had he not once expressed the ridiculous idea that those poets only are great who remain great even when they are translated into prose, and even into the prose of a foreign language, and that words have no value apart from the soul which they express? His friends had laughed at him. Mannheim had called him a goose. He did not try to defend himself. As every day he saw, through the example of writers who talk of music, the absurdity of artists who attempt to image any art other than their own, he resigned himself, though a little incredulous at heart, to his incompetence in poetry, and he shut his eyes and accepted the judgments of those whom he thought were better informed than himself. So he let his friends of the review impose one of their number on him, a great man of a decadent coterie, Stefan von Helmut, who brought him an Iphigenia. It was at the time when German poets, like their colleagues in France, were recasting all the Greek tragedies. Stefan von Hilmut's work was one of those astounding Greco-German plays in which Ibsen, Homer, and Oscar Wilde are compounded, and of course a few manuals of archaeology. Agamemnon was neurasthenic and Achilles impotent. They lamented their condition at length, and naturally their outcries produced no change, the energy of the drama was concentrated in the role of Iphigenia, a nervous, hysterical, and pedantic Iphigenia who lectured the hero, declaimed furiously, laid bare for the audience her Nietzschean pessimism, and glutted with death, cut her throat, shrieking with laughter. Nothing could be more contrary to Christophe's mind than such pretentious, degenerate, ostrogothic stuff in Greek dress. It was hailed as a masterpiece by everybody about him. He was cowardly and was over-persuaded. In truth, 
He was bursting with music and thinking much more of his music than of the text. The text was a new bed into which to let loose the flood of his passions. He was as far as possible from the state of abnegation and intelligent impersonality proper to musical translation of a poetic work. He was thinking only of himself, and not at all of the work. He never thought of adapting himself to it. He was under an illusion. He saw in the poem something absolutely different from what was actually in it. Just as when he was a child, he used to compose in his mind a play entirely different from that which was upon the stage. It was not until it came to rehearsal that he saw the real play. One day he was listening to a scene, and he thought it so stupid that he fancied the actors must be spoiling it, and went so far as to explain it to them in the poet's presence, but also to explain it to the poet himself, who was defending his interpretation. The author refused bluntly to hear him, and said with some asperity that he thought he knew what he had meant to write. Christophe would not give in, and maintained that Helmut knew nothing about it. The general merriment told him that he was making himself ridiculous. He said no more, agreeing that after all it was not he who had written the poem. Then he saw the appalling emptiness of the play and was overwhelmed by it. He wondered how he could ever have been persuaded to try it. He called himself an idiot and tore his hair. He tried in vain to reassure himself by saying, You know nothing about it. It is not your business. Keep to your music. He was so much ashamed of certain idiotic things in it, of the pretentious pathos, the crying falsity of the words, the gestures and attitudes, that sometimes, when he was conducting the orchestra, he hardly had the strength to raise his baton. He wanted to go and hide in the prompter's box. He was too frank and too little politic to conceal what he thought. Everyone noticed it, his friends, the actors, and the author. Helmut said to him with a frigid smile, "'Is it not fortunate enough to please you?' Christophe replied honestly. "'Truth to tell, no. I don't understand it.' "'Then you did not read it when you set it to music?' "'Yes,' said Christophe naively. "'But I made a mistake. I understood it differently.' "'It is a pity you did not write what you understood yourself.' "'Oh, if only I could have done so,' said Christophe. The poet was vexed and in his turn criticized the music. He complained that it was in the way and prevented his words being heard. If the poet did not understand the musician, or the musician the poet, the actors understood neither the one nor the other, and did not care. They were only asking for sentences in their parts on which to bring in their usual effects. They had no idea of adapting their declamation to the formality of the piece and the musical rhythm. They went one way, the music another. It was as though they were constantly singing out of tune. Christophe ground his teeth and shouted the note at them until he was hoarse. They let him shout and went on, imperturbably, not even understanding what he wanted them to do. Christophe would have flung the whole thing up if the rehearsals had not been so far advanced, and he had not been bound to go on by fear of legal proceedings. Mannheim, to whom he confided his discouragement, laughed at him. "'What is it?' he asked. "'It is all going well. You don't understand each other? What does that matter? Who has ever understood his work but the author? It is a toss-up whether he understands it himself.' 
Christophe was worried about the stupidity of the poem, which, he said, would ruin the music. Mannheim made no difficulty about admitting that there was no common sense in the poem, and that Helmut was a muff. But he would not worry about him. Helmut gave good dinners and had a pretty wife. What more did criticism want? Christophe shrugged his shoulders and said that he had no time to listen to nonsense. It is not nonsense, said Mannheim, laughing. How serious people are! They have no idea of what matters in life. And he advised Christophe not to bother so much about Helmut's business, but to attend to his own. He wanted him to advertise a little. Christophe refused indignantly. To a reporter who came and asked for a history of his life, he replied furiously, It is not your affair. And when they asked for his photograph, for a review, he stamped with rage and shouted that he was not, thank God, an emperor, to have his face passed from hand to hand. It was impossible to bring him into touch with influential people. He never replied to invitations, and when he had been forced by any chance to accept, he would forget to go, or would go with such a bad grace that he seemed to have set himself to be disagreeable to everybody. But the climax came when he quarreled with his review, two days before the performance. End of section 48